Well, as promised, our text for today will be from Psalm 95. So if you kept Psalm 100 marked in your Bibles, piece of cake for you to find it. Psalm 95. The psalmist writes, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving and extol Him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth. And the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the wilderness where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said they are a people whose hearts go astray. They have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, They shall never enter my rest. Father, as we look into your word today, we want to do so with thanksgiving. Very often, we don't know what that means. I pray that by your Spirit, Lord, you would teach us what it means to offer true thanksgiving to you. Lord, not only in this moment, but when we leave this place, may we be changed. We pray this in the name of your Son, by your Spirit, and for your glory. Amen. On September 16, 1620, the Mayflower embarked on a voyage to a new world with 102 passengers, 102 pilgrims seeking to worship the Lord freely and to protect their children from the smothering influences of the culture around them. Barely half of them survived to celebrate what we generally recognize as the first Thanksgiving. There were actually nearly twice as many Wampanoag natives there as there were English Puritans. According to any normal standard by which we generally judge the good life today, these pilgrims seemed to have more to complain about than to celebrate. They had suffered through privation and disease, harsh weather. Everything had gone wrong. And finally, a year later, they had a successful harvest And yet the graves were still fresh with their loved ones. 
After the successful harvest of 1621, they gathered joyfully to acknowledge the great providence of God and to celebrate His goodness. There are only two accounts of this Thanksgiving, this celebration together. They didn't call it Thanksgiving at that point. Edward Winslow's account, Edward Winslow, by the way, is an ancestor of Brad Clark. I just found out that William Brewster is a, an ancestor of, uh, uh, of uh, Lynn Warner. By the way, we've got to talk about William Brewster. That's pretty cool. That, that's pretty awesome. So. Edward Winslow's account of that celebration reads like this. Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent four men on fowling so that we might, after a special manner, rejoice together, after we had gathered the fruits of our labors. They four, in one day, killed as much fowl as, with a little help beside, served the company almost a week, at which time, amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms, many of the Indians coming amongst us, and amongst the rest, their greatest king, Massasoit, with some ninety men, whom for three days we entertained and feasted. And they went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor and upon the captain and others. And although it be not always so plentiful as it was at this time with us, yet by the goodness of God, we are so far from want that we often wish you partakers of our plenty. In the midst of all the harshness, all the disappointment, the plans not going the way they thought, landing in a place that was not even where they, where they uh, were authorized to start their colony, they turned their attention upward. It reminds me of our memory verse for today. It's 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. That brings us to our core reality as we look at this in Psalm 95. That core reality is this. True thanksgiving is rooted in the person of God more than the gifts of God. True thanksgiving is rooted in the person of God of God more than the gifts of God. Let's jump right into it. Notice this. Hearts sensitive to God overflow with joyful thanksgiving. Hearts sensitive to God overflow with joyful thanksgiving. Take a look at, at how the psalmist presents this psalm. Look at the beginning and the end and how he couches this for us. Verses 1 and 2 start out with the call to joyful, exuberant praise, loud praise, giving thanks in song to the Lord. He says, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving and extol Him with music and song. There is a, an exuberant joy there, isn't there? This is not a description of a passive acknowledgement that God, you know, God is good. 
It's not even a, just a God is good all the time and all the time God is good. This is an overflowing, shouting, singing, stomping, dancing, clapping kind of praise. And these were the Puritans that were on, in, this, uh, in this Thanksgiving celebration. We get this idea of what the Puritans were like, but they were living Psalm 95. They were living in gratitude to God through feasting and shooting off their guns as they exercised their arms, having games and feasting and dancing and celebration. Might maybe change your picture of what the Puritan pilgrims were like. Now look at the back end of this psalm. Look at what he says in verses 10 and 11. Here in 10 and 11, he ends with this sad denunciation that the Lord was angry with his people for an entire generation and swore that they would never enter the rest that he had had in store for them. He did indeed keep his promise of rest for his people, but those of that generation would not see it. Verse 10, for 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath. Now you got to understand, when God declares on oath, this is a serious thing. God takes oaths very seriously. And God himself never lies, cannot lie, has no need for oaths. He wants to emphasize this. He declared on oath. They shall never enter my rest. Now it might help us to be able to grasp the, this idea if we understand what's happening in the Psalms. We often associate the Psalms with King David, right? And we tend to view them only through that lens, through his life. Or perhaps more often, we kind of see the Psalms as a fairly random collection of prayers and poetry to be picked through as one-off inspirational readings. But in reality, they were written over generations by several different authors in a variety of different circumstances. Perhaps the most significant key to understanding the Psalms and therefore understanding this Psalm is to recognize that this hymn book of Israel regardless of when they were written, was compiled, it was put together after their return from exile in Babylon. When they returned to Jerusalem, this is when the Psalms are compiled. Taken together, the book of Psalms tells a story. It's the story of God's people journeying from God's blessing through God's judgment to God's redemption. In the Psalms, <clears throat> excuse me, in the Psalms, we see God's king leading God's people to sing God's praise. Now, the book of Psalms is divided into five books, five sections. If you're familiar with uh, modern hymn books at all, if you've ever spent any time looking at a hymn book, they're divided up in a similar way. You might find <clears throat> Excuse me. You might find in a hymn book uh, a section on God's providence, 
another on Christ's incarnation, another on his passion and resurrection, his return, and so on. These sections of the Psalms, these five books, each carry the congregation through part of the story. That's how the book of Psalms is laid out, kind of like we might recognize a hymn book today. Now, Psalm 95 comes toward the end of book 4 as God's people are preparing to receive God's promised restoration. Understand, He hasn't delivered them yet. They're still in exiled in, in Babylon, but they've heard His promise, and they're beginning to understand His grace. Their praise is still anticipating what God will do as they remember what God has done in the past. His past providence is the witness to His great faithfulness and steadfast love. As they lift their eyes beyond their circumstances to see the reality of God, they're learning to worship Him for who He is, not merely for what He gives them or does not give. They're beginning to return to a worship rooted in God Himself and not just in what they can get from God. Through the darkness of God's rejection and the bright hope of His redemption, they are learning that those who know and love the Lord rejoice with persevering gratitude. Hearts sensitive to God overflow with joyful thanksgiving. Now, this psalm, Psalm 95, is basically laid out in three parts. First, we see the call to joyful thanksgiving. Then we see in the middle section the basis for joyful thanksgiving. And at the end, which is the longest section, interestingly, we see the opposite of joyful thanksgiving. Look at the psalm again. Come, let us sing to, for joy to the Lord. Then jump down to verse 3. For because the Lord is the great God. And he goes on to give these reasons. Then we jump down to this latter part of verse 7 through the rest. Today, if only you would hear his voice. Don't harden your hearts as you did. Because those who did were not able to enter God's rest. Notice these things as we work through this. When our hearts are sensitive to God, there are four things that we see here. I'm going to go ahead and give them to you all in one shot. And then we'll come back and talk about them. First, when our hearts are sensitive to God, we are thankful that God is our defense and rescue. We're thankful that God is our defense and rescue. Secondly, when our hearts are sensitive to God, we are thankful that God is supreme and sovereign. When our hearts are sensitive to God, we are thankful that He is supreme and sovereign. Third, when our hearts are sensitive to God, we are thankful that God created and rules all things. That God created and rules all things. And when our hearts are sensitive to God, we are thankful that God has called us into special relationship to Himself. We're thankful that God has called us into special 
relationship to himself. So let's walk through this. When our hearts are sensitive to God, we're thankful that God is our defense and rescue. Take a look at verses 1 and 2. We've seen them already. Let them sink in as you take this in. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving and extol Him with music and song. We are giving thanks and praise to our God who is our rock, our strong place, our defense. When our enemies come against us, In Israel's case, they were literal, physical enemies. For you and I, you may not have recognizable, earthly, temporal enemies. Maybe you do. But all of us have the enemies of the world, the flesh, and the devil conspiring to bring us down, to shipwreck our faith, to turn us away from God. Whatever the enemies are that you face... We need to understand that God is our defense. He is also our rescue, our salvation. He is the strong place of our defense, and He is our strong, sure, certain salvation. We often, in modern Christianity, we hear that term salvation, and we immediately think that we're talking about our, our passing from death to life, and that is very much at the center of it. But the idea of salvation here in the psalm is broader. It's not as specific as that. It's that God rescues us from all from which we need rescuing. Whatever it is in your situation, whatever it is that is coming against you, God is our rescue. He is our salvation. When our hearts are sensitive to God, we are thankful that He is this. It would be very easy for Israel to focus on the fact that they're still in exile. In fact, in the previous book, in in book three of the Psalms, they're stuck in this darkest place. And the question burning in the hearts of God's people is, has God utterly rejected us forever? How can we possibly sing the songs of Zion in this foreign land? We have no temple. We have no presence that we can see of God. Is it possible that God could even be with us at all? Does He even care? If we're honest with ourselves, sometimes in our darkest times, we might wonder the same thing. We might go through those hardships when we think, you know what, I've done too much. I've fallen too far. I've failed too profoundly. How could he even love me? Obviously, he can't. I must not belong to him. He must have abandoned me forever. That was the struggle that Israel went through. And now in Psalm 95, the psalmist is saying, look, it doesn't matter what you're going through. 
Give thanks to him because he is our strong place. He is our defense. He is our salvation, our rescue, whatever it is. Do you really think it compares to the greatness of our God? We've spent several psalms prior to this, and we'll spend more going forward focusing on the reality that God has never failed his people. Even in the midst of exile, God says, I will shelter you under my wings. Even when the Babylonians, the wicked Babylonians, seem to be rising above God's people, God is using them to bring discipline and judgment. But God has not stopped being sovereign. And he stands for his people. And he is ready to rescue us as well. When our hearts are sensitive to God, rather than shaking our fists saying, God, how could you let this happen? We are grateful and thankful that we can turn to him as our rescue. Secondly, we see in verse 3, that when our hearts are sensitive to God, we are thankful that God is supreme and sovereign. Verse 3 says, For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all small g gods. All of those things that we would lift up as important, the idols of the world, for you and I, they're not necessarily idols carved of wood and stone, that we give overt worship to, but all of those places where we've placed our hope, those things that we've allowed to become more important to our hearts, more precious to us than God himself, God rules over all of that. What gods are in your life? What small g God, what idol is interrupting your fellowship with God? Is it your job? Is it your family? Are your children more important to you than the Lord is? Most of us would instinctively answer, oh, certainly not. But look at the reality of your practical everyday. Are you raising your kids according to the world's standards or according to the standards of God's Word? Is their safety or their education or their prosperity more important to you than their holiness, their righteousness, their relationship to God in Jesus Christ? Is it more important to you to keep the peace in your relationships than it is to stand for truth? If so, you got some small g gods in the way. Whatever it is that is causing you to take your eyes off of the big G, one true living God, understand that God is supreme and sovereign over all of that. Is your financial situation stressing your heart? God rules over your financial situation. He is supreme 
And He is sovereign. He is the great God. He is the King over all little gods. There is nothing in your life, no square inch of the universe, over which Christ does not cry, Mine. When our hearts are callous toward God, we might resent that. We might doubt that. We might struggle to accept that that could be true. Now, when I say doubt, I don't mean to confuse you. We can often doubt momentarily as our emotions overtake us. But that lasting doubt that says, I'm not sure that's actually true. I'm not sure God's word can be trusted. That is a lasting kind of doubt that comes from an ungrateful, hard heart. When our hearts are sensitive to God, we're thankful that God is supreme and sovereign. Third, when our hearts are sensitive to God, we're thankful that God created and rules all things. Look at verses 4 and 5. In His hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to Him. The sea is His, for He made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Genesis 1 and 2. You're familiar with it. You know what is there. But I'm going to have you turn there anyway. Because sometimes we need to go beyond what's in our heads and read what's on the page. Genesis chapter 1. We won't read all of it, but we'll read enough for you to have the gist beginning with verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and He separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. Darkness he called night. There was evening. There was morning. The first day. Verse 6, And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky. And there was evening. There's morning the second day. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. Verse 11, Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. Verse 14, And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. Let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. Verse 20. And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it 
according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was so, that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. Verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. Jump down to chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array, By the seventh day, God had finished the work He had been doing. So on the seventh day, He rested from all His work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it He rested from all the work of creating that He had done. Look back at Psalm 95, verses 4 and 5. In His hand are the depths of the earth, And the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. In our day, the biblical account comes under much criticism and fire. It's written off as mythology and unimportant to to the message of the Bible. But I will contend that it is the foundation of everything else in Scripture. If we throw away the Genesis account, we can talk about details in it and so on, but when we throw away the Genesis account and we write it off as mythology, all of the Scripture comes unraveled. We must understand that the very foundation of our faith is that God is creator of all things. Therefore, the creator God, who is supreme and sovereign, is authorized and able to rule everything. Because he created it all. You have no significance apart from him. That's the message of the naturalist, the atheist, where a series of essentially accidents that have happened and just kind of stumbled into who you are now. There's no great overarching purpose. There's no mission for which you were created. Life finds a way. That is an incompatible view with biblical Christianity. That is not the God of the Bible. 
No, when we have a heart that is sensitive to God, we are thankful that He created all things and therefore that He rules all things. I do not have a right to say, it's my life, I do what I want. I didn't create myself. I didn't give myself purpose. I was created by God for His purpose. So were you. The question for each one of us is, will we accept it or reject it? The heart that is sensitive to God is thankful that God created and rules all things. That's the lesson that Job learned at the end of that book. You don't have to turn there, but in in Job 42 in particular, God has finally shown up as Job requested. And when he did, Job wasn't really happy. Because what he discovered was that God is God, and he doesn't answer to man. He creates all things. He rules over all things. So when God shows up, he says to Job, Who are you again? I'm sorry, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? How's that exploration of the bottom of the sea going for you? By the way, we still haven't explored the expanse of the ocean in its fullness. We know more about outer space than we do the bottom of the ocean. And that's here. That's here on earth. We don't even need a spaceship. But we can't get there. God holds it in his hands. And he says, Joe, were you there when I made Leviathan and Behemoth? Were you there when I decided how much snow will fall? What do you know about it? And Job's response was, um, I'm done. I'm, I spoke about things I didn't understand. I had heard about you with my ears. Now I've seen you for myself. And I'm just going to sit down and shut up over here. And you, you just be God. And I'm just going to worship you. What a great response. That's what a heart that's sensitive to God does. It recognizes that my super smart wisdom and my big fat mouth don't have a place before the great God who created and rules all things. And I'm thankful. And I live recognizing that the very breath in my lungs is His. I owe Him everything and he owes me nothing every moment that we are breathing is grace because God's justice should have killed you while you were sleeping we're thankful that God created and rules all things fourth we see that when our hearts are sensitive to God, we're thankful that God has called us into special relationship to Himself. I mentioned previously, we all have been created with the same purpose. 
God created all of us, therefore we all belong to Him as His creation, but He's called us to more. Notice in verses 6 and 7, Come, let us bow down. Notice the humility here. Let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God. And we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. This is a recognition that it's more than just that God created humanity in His image, that we are His image bearers. There is that. But Israel is saying, God made us to be His. We are His special people. We belong to Him. He cares for us like a shepherd tends his sheep. He provides for our needs. He protects us from our enemies. We lack nothing when we're in His care. Do you recognize that God has called all of us to pursue that relationship? If you exist, you exist for God's glory. But sin separates us from that relationship because sin is the opposite of that purpose. Sin is choosing my way instead of God's way. Living for my glory, for my pleasure, rather than living for God's glory and His pleasure. When I do what I think is right, according to my wisdom, my sense of justice, and I want to get my way, and when God blesses me, that's good, and when God chooses to take away, then that must be bad, because it's against my way. It's the essence of sin. And that keeps us from the special relationship God has called us to. Israel is an illustration of that for us. All of us were created with that purpose in mind. and In Genesis 3, that's shattered. And death comes into the system because of our sin. By Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abram out of the world. The world, the entire human race stained with sin, turned against God. God reaches into this pagan land in a family of idol worshipers and says, Abram, come with me. I'm going to send you someplace. I'm not telling you where yet. Just come. And so Abraham leaves his family. He turns his back on everything that he's known, everything that is comfortable for him, the religion he grew up with, the family that is so dear to his heart and yet unresponsive to God, and he walks away from all of that as God calls him out. He says, I'm going to make a new people out of you, my special possession. And your people will bless the entire world. Eventually culminating in our Savior Jesus Christ. That picture of God calling out a special people for a special relationship. And then those people turn their back on Him every time things start going well. 
So God stirs them up with pain. Not because he hates them, but because he loves them. And he brings them back through their suffering. And it takes until book four of the Psalms for them to start figuring out, wait a minute, this suffering is for our good. Because we have been called to a special relationship with God. Let me just pause here to say that everything in your life is designed for that purpose. We're told in Romans 8.28 that everything works together for the good of them who love God and are called according to His purpose. But I want to point out the rest of it. Everything else, everything, is designed to bring you to that place where you choose Him. Where your heart, once stone, is softened, even broken, ready to respond to the Holy Spirit. God is doing that. If you don't know Jesus, if you maybe have been in church your whole life, but you haven't entered into this relationship, every single thing in your personal history, and I'm not exaggerating or being hyperbolic when I say everything in the history of the earth is designed to bring you to the foot of the cross. How'd you get here? Your family history. From Adam and Eve, through Noah, all the way down to your history right now. All of that stacked up. The good, the bad, the indifferent. To bring you to Christ. And if you are in Christ, if you've come to that place already where you've acknowledged Him and you've knelt at the cross and said, Lord, I'm yours. Save me then you are forever his child and nothing can undo that relationship. And everything since that time is designed, orchestrated by God, engineered by him to chip off all those hard places, to scrape and whittle and file and sand and grind off all of the sin spots until you are perfectly conformed to the image of Christ. Everything to bring you to Him. And then everything to make you like Him. It's a reality. In John chapter 1, verse 12, that even though we have rejected Him, we did not receive Him to as many as did receive him. To them, he gives the right to become children of God. You know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him doesn't perish, doesn't spend eternity separated from God in condemnation and judgment, which we all deserve. That's our default mode. No, instead we have everlasting life. Because the Son didn't come to condemn the world, but so that the world would be saved through Him. Those who believe in the Son receive eternal life and are saved. Those who do not 
John 3.18, stand condemned already. You can have that special relationship with him simply by receiving it. He's done all the work. Jesus paid it all. In the same way as God brought Israel into that exile and God brought Israel out of that exile. In Jeremiah 29, he said, look, you're going into exile and in 70 years I'm going to bring you back because I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. And the plans, which are going to involve worse horrors than you ever imagined, are actually for your ultimate good and my ultimate glory. And on the back side of this, when you come out of this exile, you will seek me and you will find me because you'll finally seek me with all your heart. Not just for the stuff I give you, but you'll seek me. If you're in Christ, that's what he's calling you to now. Stop asking daddy just for stuff. Don't stop asking daddy for stuff. Stop asking him just for stuff. Seek him. Love daddy. And everything changes. When our hearts are sensitive to God, we are thankful that God has called us into a special relationship to himself. When our hearts are hard, we resent his sovereign grace. Final point here. The unthankful heart makes itself the enemy of God. The unthankful heart makes itself the enemy of God. Understand that gratitude requires humility and responsiveness. It's the nature of it. I cannot be full of myself and be grateful at the same time. I cannot think that I deserve to be grateful at the same time. I cannot my wages and see that as a gift at the same time. So as long as I think I'm entitled to anything, that God owes me anything, I am not grateful, and I do not understand grace. James chapter 4, verses 6 to 8 reminds us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, we're to submit to Him and draw near to Him so that he will draw near to us. Exodus 17, you can mark that down. I won't have you turn there for now, but Exodus 17 gives us the story of what happened at Meribah and Massah. Before I talk about it, let's go back to Psalm 95, picking up at the, the bottom end of verse 7, going into verse 8. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah as you did that day at Massah in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray. They have not known my ways. So I've declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. We see that in Exodus 17. That's the picture we have. The Israelites are like five minutes out of, uh, of Egypt, right? They've, they've been delivered from bondage in Egypt. This like just happened. They're in the midst of this stuff. 
They've seen God break mighty Pharaoh's hard heart with the ten plagues. They've seen God move the Egyptians to just hand over their gold and wealth to the Israelites as they're leaving. We don't talk about that miracle very often, but that's astonishing. People don't just give up stuff, right? Especially to a bunch of slaves who are the reason we just had all these hardships and plagues. But we're just going to give you our stuff. Here's my, here's my television. Here's my car. Just take it. It's all good. It's yours. Have it. Just leave. They've seen this. They've watched him part the Red Sea for them and then drown the Egyptian army in that same water. They follow the pillar of fire by day and the pillar of cloud by night. Switch that. Can't see the cloud at night. But now they're thirsty. They've gotten out into the desert, out into the wilderness, and they're thirsty. And they start to grumble against God. Seriously? After all that, after all that God has done, their response to a little hardship is, what's the deal, God? Why aren't you taking care of us? Did you just bring us out here to die in the wilderness? They haven't even gotten to the part where they wander in the desert for 40 years yet. That's still coming. They're like five minutes removed from deliverance in Egypt. And instead of gratitude and trusting God with his demonstrated unimpeachable character and his faithfulness to them, Instead, in the hardness of ingratitude and a sinful sense of entitlement, their response to God is, what have you done for me lately? We can look at them and think how pathetic that is. But don't we do the same thing? Stuff gets a little bit tough, a little bit tense, a little stressful. And we give up on God being sovereign, being good. We act as if his faithfulness is limited. As the psalmist recalls God's anger with the ungratefulness of that generation, it serves as a warning to the Jews in exile and to us today. God keeps his promises and has never utterly rejected his people or rescinded his covenant. But when his own people forgot their place and became unthankful, he treated them as if they were his enemies. When God's people act like the heathen unbelievers, they face the same consequences as the heathen unbelievers. The unthankful heart makes itself the enemy of God. When we act like heathen unbelievers, we face the same consequences as God withdraws his hand of blessing and protection. In their hardness, they demonstrate that they are his people in name only, not by faith. In the same way, the attitude of our own hearts demonstrates who we are. If my heart is sensitive to God, I will learn... Notice there's a learning to it. I will learn to overflow with joyful thanksgiving because of who God is. 
regardless of my temporal circumstances. I'll be humbled by the reality that this is indeed my Father's world. And I'll be filled with overwhelming, humble joy that His love does indeed endure forever. His great faithfulness and matchless grace through all generations. In that persevering kind of thankfulness, we demonstrate that we belong to Him. Now, we're going to hear a lot about Thanksgiving this coming week, rightly so. We may even actually give God thanks for all the blessings we've received. For some families, you may take a moment before the big feast to share things that you're thankful for, the blessings you've received this year. And I encourage that. I I think that's a great practice. If you don't do it, maybe consider doing it. But what about your valley of the shadow of death? What about your exile when it feels like God is far away? These are the very things that taught God's people to return to Him in humility and gratitude. When our focus is on the person of our all-glorious Father God, when our hearts see Him as a beautiful, sweet song, when the reality of Christ is more precious to us than anything this world could ever possibly offer, then our hearts will overflow with exuberant, joyful thanksgiving, whether our circumstances are pleasant or unpleasant, no matter what. I draw your attention again to our memory verse for the week, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Remember this core reality, true thanksgiving, is rooted in the person of God more than the gifts of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Not merely for all of the mighty things you have done, but Lord, we praise you because of who you are. Help us not to get overly wrapped up in our circumstances. They're they're real. Pain is real. The need to act is real. But all these things are temporary. Remind us that everything we deal with, good, bad, indifferent, is an opportunity for us to bring glory to you. To bring a smile to your face as we live in grateful, faithful obedience. Trusting you cherishing you, treasuring you above all things. Great is your faithfulness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.